Second Peter chapter three, verses one through nine, as we continue on in the series that never ends. And it says this, Peter writing, it says, dear friends, we, we looked at the scripture last week, but we're gonna, we're gonna zoom in on a different part of it. Dear friends, this is, how, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I wanna stir up your sincere understanding by way of a reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last day, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since your ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. In other words, they were saying like, look, it seems like nothing's changed. Are you sure this Jesus is gonna do what he said he's gonna do or has done what he said he's done? They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's about the end of day. We're gonna be launching into that in just a few weeks. And then he says this in verse eight. This is what I wanna focus in on. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And then he says this, the Lord does not delay his promise. Come on, somebody. He doesn't delay his promise. We talked about this last week as we talked about delay, time, and delay. And then he says this, as some understand delay, and then he goes, but he's patient with you. So he's reminding us that God's delay, or what we define as delay, is actually not delay, it's patience. Anybody thankful for a patient God? And then he says this, this is why God's being patient, because he's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, what a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. And so today is, I wanna speak to you concerning one of the most sobering but beautiful doctrines found within our Christian faith. And that's the subject of repentance. So the title for my message today is this, as we continue on in our series, if you're taking notes, write this at the top of your paper today. It is called this, Change in the Right Key. Change in the right key. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. So God, I ask you to move right now. Do what only you can do in this place. We love you, we honor you with your word today. Speak to us now. In Jesus' mighty name, come on everybody, shouted. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm gonna illustrate something for us and help us understand some truths today. And I wanna be very clear about this. I am not a professional, okay? So uh, the guys who just played, they're professionals. Uh, I am amateur at best, but I learned how to play the guitar when I was a kid. And uh, I was in some uh, rock bands. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and uh, some of those rock bands, well, they didn't do anything. Um, they weren't successful. Oh, there we go. Okay. So uh, when I was a kid, um, don't judge me for this next comment, but it was in the heyday of like uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden. Actually, judge me all you want. That's awesome rock music right there, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and then it was in those moments that I, that I decided, hey, I wanna, I wanna do music, and so I was in part of like bands, and one of my dreams was to just, you know, be like a, just a rock person and do the whole nine yards, and then Jesus got a hold of me. And so, that's the long and the short of my story. Um, but as I was thinking about this the other day, many of us struggle with a lot of the issues 
that are doctrinally represented in our faith. And one of the most beautiful doctrines that we have in our faith is the doctrine of salvation. It's a core, it's a core doctrinal truth for us. Now, if you were to break out the doctrine of salvation, there's gonna be some nuances and some uh, singular applications to it that you can zoom in on each of these subject matters. And you've heard of some of these subject matters while even being here at the well. One of them is, is this theological perspective on our doctrine of salvation, which is this term called justification. Y'all heard of that before? Some of you have, some of you haven't. I know some of us in this room today, maybe this is your first time at church or you've not really uh, darkened the doors of a church. You're gonna hear some truths today that I want you to just hang on with me, all right? As well as a qualifier. I love talking about this subject matter, so if I get really excited today, there you go, okay? So the first one is the doctrine, uh, this, this issue of justification. This is justification is that when I say yes to Jesus, I am in right standing, I am justified before God. Come on, that's good news right there. I love it. And so I can't do anything. I can't earn it. I can't buy it. Like salvation, I can't do it. But I am, I am made right before God. It's justified. I'm justified. Then there's a second one, not in any order of importance. The second one is glorification. This is the perfection that we enter into when we cross the finish line of faith and we find ourselves in eternity with King Jesus. We can't do anything about that. That's him. This beautiful place that we will be forever. Forever. <laughs> Where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is King and He's Lord. Where every tear will be wiped away and pain will no longer exist. Come on, somebody. Where He's preparing a place for you and I. Oh, to see that day. The glorification. And then there's this other one. We talk a lot about it sanctification. How many of you have heard that before? Sanctification is the process of God's grace working itself out in our lives day in, day out. It's me progressively moving to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. Not Jesus, not God, but that I'm being transformed into the image and likeness of. So that's sanctification. There's another part of the doctrine of salvation that's really important for us, and that is faith. Everybody shout faith. Faith. Faith is the application necessary to engage Salvation By faith, I come to Jesus because I recognize what he's done on the cross. And it's my faith that I put it in this saving grace that we have in Jesus. Not that I boast about it because I can't, because I didn't do anything for it. But I believe that Jesus died, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I. I put my faith in Jesus. So that's the, the basic minimalist version of this massive doctrine of salvation which people spend years getting educated on and having big degrees. Pastor Howie, <coughs> Pastor Dave, <coughs> Pastor Lori. <coughs> I play guitar. Um, here's the problem though. We tend to leave one out. It's the one that we, is, is less palatable to us because of what's involved with facing it, and that is the issue of repentance. We've gotten rid of this one, or we don't talk about it as much, because repentance is closely connected to sin. The reason we don't talk about repentance is because we don't like to talk about sin. You notice sin became a dirty word in church? We can't talk about it, and we, oh, that hurts my feelings and everything like that. Like, can we just for the day, for the next little while, just get rid of feelings for a second? 
because I'm gonna say some challenging stuff because with repentance removed from the equation, we are missing a very important reality, but even more specifically to illustrate this, we're, we're missing an important note. And that's what I wanna illustrate for you today. So, it's a pretty chord, isn't it? I like that chord. It's a fun chord to play. So, salvation is a sustained key, if you will. I'm just gonna let it sit there. It's beautiful. There's nothing we can do to change it. You can't manipulate it. It's anchored, it's sustained by God's word. Come on, somebody. Now, we come to Jesus with faith. <laughs> Get us <stop> that deep. <laughs> and so these notes that we play, they're within the key. And so you can play. It's all within the right key. And so my salvation by faith, and I have justification. And I have sanctification. But here's what happens, is that many of us try to change without repentance. And so we apply a different note. sounds awful. <laughs> and you're like, God, I, I believe in, in what I have in you. And I said yes to you. And I have faith, but I'm walking around trying to accomplish something in a different key. And so what I want to encourage us with today and I want to look at today is that repentance is often the missing note in our salvation journey. And for some of us now, we have to get our key right. And in getting the key right, our life becomes worship unto Jesus. And change takes place, come on somebody, in the right key. So we're going to leave this here for a second. Everybody shout repentance. But it gets a little more difficult because repentance is hard. Repentance causes us to have to look at ourselves. Repentance is required. It's the required note for change. See, without repentance, change is difficult. It's ill-fitting. It's laborious. It's religious behavior modification. And it's futile at best. 
So let's start with a working definition of repentance according to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It says this, repentance in its biblical sense, it refers to a deeply seated and thorough turning from self to God. It occurs when a radical turning to God takes place, an experience in which God is recognized as the most important fact of one's existence. In our statement of faith here at the well, we've placed this in their repentance. We believe repentance is the commitment to turn away from sin in every area of our lives and to follow Christ, which allows us to receive his redemption and to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Thus, through repentance, we receive forgiveness of sins and appropriate salvation. Come on, somebody. So this is our working definition of repentance. And what has unfortunately taken place is that the doctrine and the subject matter of both salvation and repentance has been removed from much of our teaching and preaching over the past several years. This has happened for a lot of reasons, but one of the greatest reasons that it's happened is because we all love the idea of salvation. We all love the idea that God has saved me, that God has done something for me, that I have a gift from him. But what we don't like is the part where we have to start talking about where we are culpable in the breaking of that relationship. Because it hurts, it causes us to look at the, the nasty parts of us and the broken parts of us and the greedy parts of us and the envious parts of us and the lustful parts of us and the prideful parts of us and the ego parts of us. It causes us to look at all those things. Author Matthew Henry said it like this concerning the importance of this subject. He said, some people do not like to hear much of repentance, but I think it's so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I would desire to die preaching repentance. And if out of the pulpit, I would desire to die practicing it. So Peter, as he's getting ready to turn his attention to the end of days, starts to talk about repentance. Because we need to understand that eternity hangs in the balance of this issue. My ability to come to Jesus and repent. And the great thing about Peter is that Peter wasn't assessing this issue from a knowledge-based reality only. It wasn't an intellectual subject matter for him, it was a personal matter for him. Because the same Peter that has written these two letters that we've been studying over the past year is the same Peter that stood at a fire and denied the very Jesus that he's writing about. It's the same Peter that after that denial and after the resurrection, Jesus would have breakfast on the beach with him. And in that moment, we would see Peter repent and we would see Jesus restore. John chapter 21, 15 to 20. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Everybody shout grieved. grieved. Come on, everybody shout grieved. grieved. It's gonna be an important word right here that we're gonna, we're gonna talk more about in a, in a moment. He was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. And truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk whenever you wanted to wherever you wanted to. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you to where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what type of death Peter would have to glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Could you imagine that moment? Jesus is like, hey, you're gonna die, follow me. 
This is the same Peter that would call men and women to repentance as the Spirit would fall at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verse 14. See, Peter knew and experienced the power and importance of repentance, not just as a doctrinal reality, but as a life-changing experience. And see, repentance is not just something that we'd see in the life of Peter, but it's something that we would see all across both Testaments of the Bible. In both the Old and New Testaments, we have words that are given us to help us understand. One of the great words that we find in the, New, in the Old Testament is a word called shubah. More frequently used, it speaks to a turning point in direction, to turn and go the opposite way that one was heading, to go in the opposite direction. We would see this used in 1 Kings 8.35, Job 36.10, Isaiah 59.20, Ezekiel 3.19, Nehemiah 9.35, Psalm 51.13, Isaiah 10.21, Jeremiah 4.1, Hosea 14.1, Amos 4.8, Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. All that to say it's in the Bible. Now we turn to the New Testament. The two most prolific words in the New Testament for repentance are metanoia and then this other one called epistrepho. Now, this is important for us to realize because there's some beautiful, beautiful truth to these words. According to Anthony Hoikma, author of a book called Saved by Grace, he writes this, though one cannot draw hard and fast lines, generally metanoia seems to emphasize the interchange involved in repentance, whereas epistrepho stresses the change in one's outward life, which implements and gives expression to the inward change. In other words, they are a noun and a verb. The noun is describing what repentance is internally within a person, and the verb is describing the actionable reality that should be taking place outwardly in one's life due to repentance. In other words, Jesus, when we repent, there is something inside of us that's going through a journey, and it's working itself, and so the outside is then expressing that inward journey. God is changing me, and I am changing. Y'all with me? God is changing me, and I am, am changing. And so repentance is a noun and a verb. William Douglas Chamberlain, a professor of New Testament exegesis at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, writes concerning this issue. He says, repentance, he said, looks ahead in hope and anticipation, whereas regret or remorse only looks backwards in shame. Repentance not only means a change of conduct, but it deals primarily with the springs of our action and with the source of our motives. In short, repentance is both internal and external. So Chamberlain would then go on to say this, and he concludes, repentance in the biblical means is the making of a new man or woman. Come on, somebody. It is the change of the life design. The whole life pattern is changed. The goal of life is different. The aspirations are different. And so we find ourselves realizing that this issue of repentance is a big truth for us to understand throughout the gospel. Jesus in Mark chapter one, verses 14 to 15 would say this. After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he would say. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to 20, Paul the apostle would preach the same thing. And he would say in, in verse 20, he said, instead I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. 
Now, I'm taking all this time to lay a foundation, a context for this conversation, because now we're gonna shift our attention to the practical reality of repentance in our lives. Now, I can still feel it in the room. Some of us are fighting with repentance, and here's why. It's because we saw it on a sign once with a person downtown, and underneath it, it said, repent or perish. Remember those? What's I took great offense to because it included my last name, and I was like, yo, what did I do to you? That's not, that's not the imagery we should get from repentance. This is a beautiful part of our salvation stories. And so my hope and my heart today as your pastor is to contend with you to help you understand first and foremost, outside of anything else, that you and I have been given one of the most significant gifts that humanity has ever seen. And it didn't come in the form of a material item. It's not something that you can find on the shelves of a store. Oh friend, you and I have been given reconciliation in Jesus. That my eternity is secure. But there's a part that many of us are missing. And we can't enjoy the fullness of that gift. I'm not saying that you're not saved, but you can't enjoy the fullness of the gift if we don't get it in the right key. <laughs> Y'all with me? Because if it's not in the right key, we take what Jesus did and we try to do it ourselves. So what I wanna to do today is help us understand that repentance involves some very specific parts of us. And so I wanna spend the remainder of our time looking at three areas of our lives that repentance involves so that we can have a better understanding of what it looks like in each of our lives and hopefully employ it into every area of our life. We're gonna look at the Gospel of Luke to help us with the imagery of repentance as he wrote a lot about it. So I need your help today. Come on, every shot number one. First truth that I want us to grab a hold of today is this, repentance involves the intellectual part of us. Yeah. Repentance involves the intellectual part of us. Luke chapter five, verses 27 through 32 says this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Now that in itself is scandalous because nobody wanted to talk to the tax collectors of the day. Nobody wants to talk to the tax collectors now, so nothing's changed. <laughs> Let's be honest in church today. Here's what I find fascinating though, is that he said to him, follow me. No other qualifications, no other invitation. Could you imagine the power and the authority and the persuasive reality of who Jesus is, that he could stroll up to a person that he shouldn't have been talking to, that nobody wanted him talking to, and he can walk up to him and say, hey, how's it going? Hey, nice to meet you, what's your name? My name's Jesus. What do you got going on in your life? You got kids, you married? None of that. Hey, do you wanna get coffee? You wanna chill down, have a fish somewhere? Break some bread? None of that, he strolls up to this guy and he says, follow me. Now the story gets even wilder. So Levi follows him, as every tax-paying man would. Right after this, Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there's a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him, which is insane at best. So we know that Levi had means because he throws this banquet for him, and then Jesus finds himself reclining at a table with tax collectors. 
And we've talked about this before. They didn't sit in chairs proper like you and I do. When they reclined, they reclined like this. They sat at a table. They talked and they engaged with each other. It was intimate. It was very different than what we do. So the Bible says that Jesus now is in a massive group of tax collectors. Watch what happens. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus goes intellectual on them. He doesn't get to the other points we're gonna get to in just a minute, he goes intellectual, and listen to what he says. He says, Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Come on, somebody. So he, he wants them to understand something. He doesn't give them a parable. He doesn't engage in emotive reasoning. All he does is he engages intellectually with them. Writer and author of a biblical theology of the New Testament puts it this way. To repent includes an awareness that as a sinner, one has an unhealthy relationship with God that needs the medical attention of the physician. Repentance involves recognizing that a person is spiritually sick and impotent, unable to help oneself. Repentance is turning to Jesus for spiritual healing, for treatment of one's heart and life, knowing that only he can give the cure. See, it's right here that Jesus creates an assessment that was meant to be assimilated logically. See, there's an aspect of our repentance that forces our minds to make an assessment of our life in relation to sin and the gift of grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. Come on, y'all with me? This is what happens when the doctor comes out with an x-ray and says, it's broken. You ever wondered why he does that? Think about this for a second. And if you're a doctor, just hold your commentary. But <laughs> I find it interesting that a doctor has to come out. You know, you went in there screaming after flipping down a hill on your bike or skis, right? And he still has to show you that it's broken. Why? Because there's a proclivity in us as humans to deny it anyways. Because right. Right. he could come in there. How many of you know this would happen too? He'd come in there and he'd be like, Hey, just so you know, your leg's broken. You're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Why are you in here? I heard it. We don't say such things. So he has to come with the x-ray just in case you want to argue with me or pull your MD web thing out. That's a real thing. Here's the x-ray. It's, it's broken. And he shows it to you. Why? So you can see the gravity of what it is that you're facing. See, the Bible talks about sin and this issue of repentance because we need to come face to face with the gravity of our brokenness. Yeah. That doesn't get very many amens. <laughs> One must realize and become aware of our sin and incongruence with the life that God has designed for us. This would be Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. Listen to what he says. Woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And I know this because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Paul would say this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, as he speaks to young Timothy, he would say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Come on, you ever felt like that before? Come on, can we get some therapy happening in church today? You ever felt like the worst of them? You ever notice in our generation that we can't say that anymore? Oh, don't say worst. We create entire Instagram handles to make sure that we know that we're not the worst. <laughs> Nothing that Paul's saying right here is affirming. 
or nice. We need to know that there's something broken so that we can submit ourselves to the one who's able to fix it. And what I find fascinating is that we are unwilling to submit ourselves to the doctor because we don't want to look at the broken thing. God, I have an ego problem, and God, I have a pride problem, and God, I have a lust problem, and I have a greed problem, and I have an ambition problem, and I have this problem, and I have that problem. God, save me. But part of the issue is that we don't believe that it's a problem. That comes later. We'll talk about that later. See, our mind is not removed from the process of repentance. I would say it actually like this. We need to make an informed choice to believe, follow, submit, and agree to Jesus' work in our lives. Come on, can I get an amen in church today? You actually have to agree upon it. He's not gonna force himself upon you. He's not gonna possess you. You're not gonna become his robot or his puppet. He doesn't doesn't do that, it's called mutual submission. Christ submitted unto death, rose again. I submit to that lordship. This is the nature of repentance and I've gotta make a logical decision. Some of us need to make a decision today to say I'm following Jesus no matter what. And you're gonna head out into that lobby after service and you're gonna tell them that I said yes to him. I made a decision today. And so when Monday comes, I get up and I'm following Jesus. When Tuesday comes, I get up and I'm following Jesus. When Wednesday comes, I get up and I'm following Jesus. When they start chirping at me at the office, I'm following Jesus. When the club's calling my name, I'm following Jesus. When that substance is trying to get me again, I'm following Jesus. When he or she comes, hey! I'm following Jesus. When they're on my Facebook, I'm following Jesus. When I'm on my Instagram, come on, somebody, I'm following Jesus. When my football team's losing, I'm following Jesus. If some of you lose your salvation. <laughs> number two, every shot, number two. The second thing is repentance involves the emotional part of us. So it's not just intellectual, but it's emotional as well. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through to 14. I love this story. Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted. I want you to hear the introduction to why Jesus is telling this parable now. It's all in the words. This is what's so beautiful about scripture. He also told this parable to some who what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. He keeps throwing those guys in there. (laughs) Verse 11, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> it's savage. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. I'm so good. When I walk, I kind of float. There's a moment in my cadence where both feet are off the ground. Like a spiritual gazelle. 
I added that in there. That's not in the text. <laughs> Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, one of the greatest reasons that we tend to misunderstand the topic of repentance and avoid its application in our lives is because we have become emotionally adverse when it comes to anything that is not deemed as happy and self-fulfilling. And so this impacts the power and application of repentance in our lives because I want you to hear this today. Repentance involves an emotional cachet that is inclusive of grief, pain, sorrow, anxiety, stress, and even shame. And in our current generation right now, we can't handle any of those things. Is it possible that we're missing the right note because we're afraid of the key? We're missing the right note because how? I can't, I can't fathom having to process through grief. You were never meant to. You were supposed to process it with the one who is able to process it with you. Man, I can't, I, I can't even think about having to deal with shame. I should never have to deal with that. You're right, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to process the one who's conquered shame at the end of the day. But I, I can't even deal with fear because man, I'm, not, I'm entitled to safety. So grief, pain, sorrow, anxiety, stress. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say this. These are actually very good things. If we are able to turn to the one who works in them, extracts them, and gives us a new identity in Jesus. So let's let the great psalmist King David help us out with this truth today. Psalm 38 verses one to two. I'm hitting every teaching mechanism possible today. So for those of us who are more shapes and colors, not intellectual, I'm gonna ask us to close our eyes now. We've played music. <laughs> ask all of us to shut our eyes and to listen to these words from King David. Psalm 38, one through 22, it says, Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my body because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am bent over and brought very low. All day long I go around in mourning. For my insides are full of burning pain. And there is no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish in my heart. Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart races, my strength leaves me, and even the light of my eyes is faded. My loved ones and friends stand back from my affliction, and my relatives stand at a distance. Those who intend to kill me set traps, and those who want to harm me threaten to destroy me. They plot treachery all day long. 
I'm like a deaf person, I do not hear. I'm like a speechless person who does not open his mouth. I'm like a man who does not hear and has no arguments in his mouth, for I put my hope in you, Lord. For you will answer me, my Lord, my God. For I said, don't let them rejoice over me. Those who are arrogant toward me when I stumble, for I'm about to fall, and my pain is constantly with me. So I confess my iniquity. I am anxious because of my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and powerful. Many hate me for no reason. Those who repay evil for good attack me for pursuing good. Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord and my salvation. Those are the words of a man who is deeply and emotionally conflicted. They are the words of a man who decided that even in the midst of all of his anxiety and his sorrow and his pain and his fear and understanding his wrongdoing and understanding the sin that was before him, he would say at the end of it all, I will not rely on myself. King Jesus, save me. And so we've got to engage emotionally with this. See, many of us have bought into the idea that God's greatest desire is for us to experience only happy emotions. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Added to that, we live in a world that has an ideology that tells us that we are entitled to happy emotions and that we need to do whatever we need to do to experience them. And so what we've ended up doing is creating safe spaces that are void of God's corrective, disciplinary, and growth-oriented work in our lives. Oh, it's getting quiet in church today. Is anybody with me? (laughs) Even more troubling, we as people try to pardon ourselves from our sin by creating permissive truths that are incongruent with God's design and desire for our lives. Instead of repenting of pride, we try and justify the action or decision or behavior you fill in the blank by using God's grace as some sort of moral lubricant to create permission. We call it grace, I call it grease. See, God has something to say about sin. An emotion is a beautiful kaleidoscope of internal information given to us by God to inform us of how we are relating to ourselves, others, and God. See, when we become afraid of certain emotions, especially where our relationship with God is concerned, we enter into a dangerous space of unawareness that keeps us in cycles of defeat, brokenness, purposelessness, and sin. I thank God that I have an emotional database that knows when I've hurt my wife's feelings. One of you are thankful for that. Come on, let's, (laughs) come on, is anybody thankful that you have an emotional database that informs you that I've done something wrong? I'm, I'm so glad that my kids are developing that in their lives. And so I, I act in that because there's moments when, when me and my wife, guess what? Newsflash, we're not, we argue in our household. Come on, somebody, can I get an amen in church today? (laughs) Judge me like the tax collector. (laughs) We we have disagreements, and there's things that I, there's sometimes I say things that I don't mean to say. 
We're both very powerful personalities. We're demonstrative in our speech. We're very opinionated. So we'll go head to head. So she'll say things that she doesn't mean to say. And I'll say things that I don't mean to say. And she'll say it in a way that she shouldn't have said it. And I'll say it in a way that she shouldn't have said it. And now 18 years. <laughs> Did I mess that up somehow? Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But now 18 years into marriage, I love the fact that we can come together and we can sit down and we can say, hey, I shouldn't have said that. See, some of us, I'm gonna talk to the married couples because this is a big one with the married couples. You're busy thinking your marriage is broken. No, you're just prideful. Your marriage doesn't need better communication. Your marriage needs repentance. <laughs> We listen, we, we talk to people, counsel people all the time, and I'm hearing everything that's going on, and I'm like, yeah, you sound like a normal married couple. <laughs> the only difference is, is that you refuse to repent. You refuse to cross over the line of pride and ego. Mm. Mm. You refuse to not just meet each other. We're not called to meet each other in the middle. We're called to serve each other, yeah. to humble ourselves. Because yeah. here's what I found. When we meet each other in the middle, we just argue about the middle. Come on, somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I feel like God just, I need to say some of this stuff. We're standing on these opposite sides and then you're being counseled, meet in the middle. So it's like, okay, we're just arguing closer now. <laughs> Versus, no, guess what? Humility and repentance of pride and repentance of the thing that you did means I'm stepping over the line. I'm getting into your space. Well, they didn't come, doesn't matter. So if you have two people who are deciding, no, my marriage is gonna be built on repentance, if you have two people doing that, my relationship, what do you fill in the blanks? If we have people that are geared up and, and ready to go, no, I'm gonna repent when I have the opportunity. I'm gonna examine myself. I'm gonna look at where I did this wrong. I'm gonna look at where I fueled the fire on this thing. And if I could just submit humbly to my wife and say, babe, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to say it that way. And she's gonna then examine herself. And then we're gonna be able to come together and we're gonna be able to have camaraderie and unity unity and reconciliation in our marriage. Yes. Everybody shout repent. I am convinced that many of the problems that we are facing in our lives and we can't get over are not due to the fact that we don't have the information necessary to get over them. Come on. How many of you agree with me? We have all the information in the world I can get on the internet tomorrow and find 55 ways to overcome this, do this, 10 keys, eight books, nine behaviors, and a couple different Herbalife things. <laughs> None of them do what repentance does. No book, no key. No herb. <laughs> number three, everybody shout number three. three. So repentance is intellectual. Repentance is emotional. There's emotional reality to it. And then repentance involves the kinetic part of us. 
In other words, repentance involves the action part of us, the doing part of us. Are y'all with me in church today? Last scripture, big long scripture, I'm not gonna read it all, but you've heard this story before. Luke chapter 15, 11 through to 32. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of my estate that I have coming to me, which is deeply offensive in this culture. You would never do that. And so the father distributes the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, there's the intellectual part. You ever been there before? Some of you are experiencing that right now in this moment. This is a service right now for even just one of you where you're coming to your senses all of a sudden. You're going, wait a second. How come I've never heard this before? You're being, aw- you're being awoken to what God has been speaking and saying and doing since the foundation of the world. You're coming to your senses. You've realized that, man, where I'm currently at, not where I want to be. And by way to this guy who's shouting a lot, he's telling me that this isn't where God wants me to be. I'm coming to my senses. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I'm dying of hunger. And then here it is, I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. Let's stop there. How many of you can see that that is an act of humility? That's an act of repentance. This young boy who squandered everything and he messed up everything and who knows what he spent it on and he's been desiring to eat the same food as pigs. He was going in one way and then repentance the actionable part of it kicks in. He comes to his senses. He has an emotional database that's telling him that he doesn't feel worthy and he doesn't feel like he should have all these things. And those feelings are good and they're necessary in that moment. And then he decides to be actionable and he turns in the opposite direction of what he, where he was heading to and he begins to walk towards his father. And then something fascinating happens. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. The son, he said, Father, I've messed this whole thing up. I've jacked this thing up completely. I'm not worthy to be your son. And the dad would go on to say, oh no boy, you need to realize something. You are not worthy, but I in turn am telling you, you are worthy. You are justified. Put a ring on him. Put a robe on him. Get a fat calf. Let's throw a party because my son who was lost is now found. See, repentance engages the Father's heart. And so many of us are looking for compassion, we're looking for love, we're looking for change, and we're doing it in the wrong key because we're missing the necessary note of repentance. And so today, I want to ask you this question. Have you repented? Because here's what I believe in this room right now. There are marriages that are on the brink 
You haven't told anybody, you haven't said anything. They're on the brink. I wonder what would happen if both of you decided, I'm just gonna kneel before God. I'm gonna stand to my feet and we're gonna hold hands and we're gonna put our hands up to the one who can overcome all things. And I don't care what you said and I don't care what you did. And you're like, Jason, but you don't know the details of that thing. Right now, I'm not concerned about the details. We can work the sanctification out later, but there's gotta be a moment where we repent. I'm sorry for messing up. I'm sorry for sleeping with him. I'm sorry for sleeping with her. I'm sorry for abusing you. I'm sorry for going back to that drug again. I'm sorry for taking all the money out of my bank account and spending, I'm sorry. Come on, I'm pushing, I'm pushing on buttons, why? Because it takes just one person to say, listen, I am done living this way. I want what God has for me. This is real life. So we gotta turn and go the other direction. So we're gonna stand to our feet right now, all of us together. And I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. Don't bow your heads. And I'm gonna ask us to do something so bold because I bet you if we were to just take a moment and look inwardly for a second, I know that I can tell you I'm gonna do this right now as well. I have things to repent of. So I'm gonna ask us to close our eyes all across this room and if you're in this moment prepared to say, you know what? I wanna relinquish control and I wanna repent to God. I'm gonna ask you to lift both hands high to heaven right now. And we're gonna give him our stuff and we're gonna say, God, into me see. And so Jesus, we lift our hands to you. God, many of us aware of what it is that's been going on in our lives. Many of us aware of our thinking and our dispositions and the actionable things that we've engaged in. And so today, collectively, we are deciding in this moment to repent. God, I repent to you right now, Jesus. I lay myself open and bare to you right now. Would you renew a right spirit within me? And I thank you that you're changing us right now, God. I thank you for the submission in this room that all of us are doing right now to say, God, change us. We're deciding to turn. So we repent of our sins. We ask you to meet us in this place right now. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, you can put your hands down. I wanna ask one more question and pray one more prayer. If today you would say, man, Jason, I'm repenting and now I'm believing and following Jesus. If that's you today, I want you to pray this next prayer with us all together so we don't leave anybody out as loud as we can. Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now, and I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. I accept salvation in you, in Jesus' name.